Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Welcome to spring. It is Monday, March 22nd, 2021. This is the second day of spring. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, with our April issue up at commentarymagazine.com. Few free reads, and we ask you to subscribe. You should subscribe even if you're just listening to the podcast and not reading us, because that is what you should do if you get such pleasure from this podcast that you continue to listen to it. In the magazine this month, we have Wilfred Riley on the good news they won't tell you on race in America. We have Joseph Epstein on polymass. We have Michael Medved on what presidents do when they seek office after they lose an election. We have so much good stuff in there. Our own Christine Rosen on Taylor Lawrence, the social media monster New York Times reporter, and many other wonderful things at commentarymagazine.com. And we have our issues in hand, and they will be in your mailbox at some point in the next week if you are a print subscriber. With me, as always, the aforementioned senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. The man who shepherds all of those articles into print, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, John. And the man who mans the website while we are while we are uh, producing the magazine, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of different little bits of things to talk about today. So um, uh, apparently, this. Uh, Seemingly sort of nice guy, new Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who means well, and of course I I have uh, I have an inherent bias in his favor because he's Jewish, even though his name is Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, so he's like he's like uh, the best kind of because he you know he's a twofer, right? Um, love him. Uh, seems to be a dope. Went on TV yesterday and said the border is closed while. Thousands of people are crossing the border every day, including unaccompanied minors. Maybe not the smartest thing to say, to say the border is closed. I mean, maybe the border is nominally closed, but, uh, you know, at border crossing points. But that's not where these people are crossing, right? So um, that said, what a thankless job (laughs) this guy has. What a thankless job he has. Anybody else, aside from him being Jewish, anybody else have any innate sympathy for the fact that he has walked into a giant buzzsaw, not really of his own making? No. Okay. He did plenty to make it. Well, I guess insofar as people are like, oh, well, Democrats don't really have a coherent understanding or vision for what U.S. immigration policy should be now because they're torn in so many ideological directions and... Yeah, whatever. Um, it's, you know, this is the enforcement of the law. It shouldn't really be a sort of a gray area. What he said, what my orca said was, we're, we made the decision where we're removing people who are adults, we're extraditing people who are adults, we're getting rid of people who are, you know, this, this group and the other group. We made a decision not to get rid of children. So you're going to get a lot of children. I mean, this is really not difficult. It's not like we have we don't have historical recent history to appeal to to say you know this is what happens when you create incentive structures that um, coyotes and families and half a dozen other interests in the in Central America take advantage of them and now we're putting people up in hotel rooms and this is going to be a political liability for the Democrats because it's always a political liability for any administration Republican or Democrat when this sort of thing happens so yeah now they're flailing but it's. It's their own fault. And so, no, sympathy will be withheld. Uh, also, their own fault is something that's now finally gotten some attention here is the is the fact that they're not really letting in press or haven't been letting in press to see what's going on in these facilities at the border. Um, they've been um, shockingly closed on that point, citing, I think, in their defense, like uh, pandemic issues uh, and whatnot. But this is this is also, you know, um, this is a problem definitely of their making. Right. And they, the, the pandemic issue thing is a double-edged sword for them because they're also not testing a lot of the people they're allowing in, right? So it's like either if the pandemic is the reason you're preventing the press from taking photographs of what's happening there, it should also be the reason you test all the people who come in before you release them into the, into the country. I'll also say there, you know, it's, it, it, there's the mainstream media narrative is picking up again about like, let's just have sympathy for everyone coming across the border. There was a, there was a story in the post about how the new editor of the Georgetown law, George, 
Georgetown Law Journal is a is a dreamer, you know, and how it's just it's terrible that she won't be able to clerk for a federal judge because she's undocumented. And there was all this sort of this is the, the same woman, by the way, who just drove out a professor who was having a private who was having conversation on Zoom about you know, the the status of African-Americans in her class. So there's, but that narrative, which we saw a lot of during the Trump years is, is reemerging. The problem is, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, follow when you see reporters who do go into Mexico. I think Martha Raddatz went over the weekend interviewing people who are like, oh no, we're going to keep coming because Biden, Biden should let us in. Biden's going to let us in. I mean, th- there's very clearly some messaging problems that DHS has right now in terms of keeping people from pouring across the border. Yeah, I, I want to add to that that the the press now is is uh, indignant, posturing indignant over the notion that they are not covering this event with the similar fervor that they dedicated to it in 2018 and 2019. This becomes almost an annual event. Um, so they're saying, you know, we're covering it. So like, how dare you? Of course, we're covering it. No one's ignoring it. Um, but it's an insult to the intelligence of anybody who lived through 2018 and surveyed the coverage. I mean, just go back. I did so recently for the blog, but just go back and take a quick peek at what the coverage looked like. It was moral a program. It was uh, it was uh, presented as though it was a moral issue. It was anybody who was on the record with CPP um, was you know asked to resign. They were they were being compelled to to exercise a, a vote of conscience and and leave. ICE or CBP or half a dozen other agencies within Homeland Security, because what they were presiding over was a, a, a moral abomination. And we don't see that kind of tone in the coverage of this sort of thing, even though the scale of it is vastly greater than it was in 2018. Okay, well, I think the reason that we're not seeing that coverage is twofold, one of which is the obvious, uh, the press are Democrats and the administration is Democrats, and they don't want to hit a Democratic administration, which they like, and who, you know, many of whom are married to people who are going into the Biden administration or want to go into the Biden administration. They may want to go into the Biden administration in one of those cushy press secretary jobs at a cabinet department, which pays $180,000 and isn't very much work at some point. Yes, I am suggesting that people are corrupt in pursuit of power, and that includes journalists. And I, there is so much evidence of uh, history of this that uh, let us not uh, let us not ca- pass a veil over that. But there is one thing that is different, and it, it's tone, right? So the the tone difference is that the Trump people thought that it was good to be mean. Now they thought I think there is both. Uh, there is there is. Uh, reason and there is a uh, manner in this. So the reason, the, the good reason is um, deterrence, right? You want to say you're going to send your kids over, we're going to put them in jail. They're not going out into the country and then bringing you over. Everything is going to be terrible for them. Don't come. You will be sorry if you come, right? Didn't work that well, actually, in 2018, but it was a message. It was Jeff Sessions' message. It was John Kelly's message. It was the message that was transmitted by the administration that said we we have zero you know tolerance for illegal immigration. So that that, that is a reasonable like tough tough foreign policy you know at our border message. But then there was the idea that this was good politically for them domestically because Trump said he was against illegal immigration. He was going to show it, and then the cruelty of the way that they talked about it uh, delighted talk radio and people like that. And it horrified a lot of people who might otherwise have been um, swayed to the positive of this notion that border rules are being enforced. You got to follow the rules. Everybody's got to follow rules. Now we've spent 30 years not following the rules and we've gotten ourselves into a giant mess. And because people because we're so inconstant, the coyotes and the and the NGOs in Central America and all of that have been convincing people to test our border security and to test our border protocols. Um, and and they that is something that is a message that the suburban mom might be able to hear, but the cruelty swamped it. And so now you have the Biden administration, which is talking nice, right? Which is Mayorkas saying, don't cross, but you know what? If you're a kid and you cross, we'll take care of you. Like, uh, no, that's bad. That's a bad message. <laughs> like, you can't say both at the same time. Let me find the quote here because um, it is. Uh, 
you know, you remember uh, Biden told Stephanopoulos last week, don't leave your town or city or community. And Mayorkas added on CBS, if they do, we will not expel that young child. Well, okay, so the hell with it then. I mean, <laughs> what do you try? What message are you trying to convey here? And and uh, but having said that, they are you know their 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 heart is not in enforcement, right? So, and the problem here is that the fact that their heart isn't in hard enforcement is something that is pleasing to the press, which didn't like, and to sort of like the mushy middle of the United States, which didn't like the ugliness of the Trump administration's tone. That's not a defense of Biden. And in an odd way, it's not an attack on Trump. I think politically, uh, the problem with Trump, as usual, was that he may have had a rational policy and executed it in a way that gave his enemies enormous amounts of ammunition to use against him in a jujitsu fashion. Having said that, Biden's got to do, they've got to do something, and it's not clear to me what they're going to do, right? Trump created this policy, they created this bizarre sort of like pre-clearance policy, sort of like going through customs in London instead of in America, right? Which was remain in place and apply for asylum there and we'll take up your asylum thing. What was that called? The migrant protocols or something? And he just threw those away. But guess what? He doesn't have anything to put in their place. Because, you know, what did they expect? That's what I, that's what I, Abe, what yeah, well, do you think uh, they expected? I, well, that, I, I'm not. No, but that's the thing. You know, they didn't. I think the, the 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 media, in a sense, doesn't know how to talk about this because they never drilled down into the policy aspect of it at all. It was all about kids in cages, and can you believe that this is America? Um, what that certainly won't serve now. Uh, they can't talk about it in those terms uh, uh, here. So I don't. I don't. I have no idea what they what they expected. Um, there was such a fog thrown up around this issue uh, during the Trump years. Um, because you, I think the, the the those sympathetic to to um, the Democrats or those an, those antagonistic of Trump in the press didn't want uh, readers or viewers to get down into the into the policy details of this to understand just what um, a bedeviling problem this actually is. Look, illegal immigration is a is an incredibly difficult problem for the United States and has been for 75 years. It is a problem because we have laws that say this is not the way you come in. And yet millions of people have come in and they have served as part of the, you know, economic apparatus of the United States in the 40s and 50s. The Braceros came in and picked vegetables and, you know, uh, fruit in California uh, they were seasonal work. They came across. They went back in in you know after the after the picking season was over uh, in the sixties and seventy as Mexico then devolved into a sort of you know corrupt um, petro state and uh, and and things got worse and worse there uh, as it got richer uh, and the sort of rule of law got thrown out the door to the extent that there was that people start really decided they wanted to stay. And then you had the effort to create an, uh, an am. There was an amnesty in 1986 with Simpson Mazzoli, and then that created that oddly, uh, which was okay. We're going to let everybody in now. They're here, and then we're going to, you know, we're going to throw up more, more, um, you know, uh, uh, we're going to prevent more people from coming in. And it it was a colossal failure, right? Because then 11 million more people came in over the course of the next. 15 years or something like that. Um, and then because of economic, because the fact that the United States wasn't the explosive economic engine that it had been previously, some of that slowed down because it just wasn't that good uh, to, you know, wasn't, it wasn't such a great life necessarily after nine 11 and, and uh, the economic meltdown and all of that. Um, it is a it is a it is as close to an intractable problem as as anybody has ever faced and of course so when i say i don't really understand what it was that they expected did they really think that there was some magic all we had to do was be nice and the problem was going to go away you know by the way because it's 
so damn near intractable. Um, deterrence is really not a bad approach, right? I mean, tr- trying to stop it before it, be, it 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 arrives at your doorstep. You know. Well, and a combination of deterrence with thoughtful policy. So I think uh, the, sure. the first time most Americans even thought in detail about immigration policy was during the whole debate over dreamers, right? Kids who are brought here very young, either as infants or toddlers, by their parents, undocumented, and then but they they grow up as American kids, right? Those I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle thought, okay, we need some path to citizenship for those kids because they're Americans. Like they live here, they they want to grow up and work here, they want to settle here with, with their families. That's a distinct population. People really had strong views about that. There are also distinct populations of people who come across the border illegally to work, send money home, and eventually plan themselves to return to their home countries if possible. They don't actually want to become citizens of the U.S., but this is this this country presents better opportunities for them economically during their working years. Okay, so we need some system of dealing with that. Deterrence might be the case for there because, I mean, right now, for example, every time I see that people are being put up in uh, hotels, I, I worry about the, the huge vast homeless population of American veterans in this country, which is a travesty. And where's, you know, we can't even help our own people in those situations. And yet we're paying, you know, for hotels for people who come here illegally. So that gets me riled up, even though I think, again, many of these cases, they're children, they don't have the wherewithal to make these decisions themselves yet. But there are so many different populations of people who come here as undocumented uh, folks. So we need to find different policies for each of those. And I think it was really actually an easy escape hatch for the media and for a lot of policymakers like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and her, you know, histrionic weeping at the border. It was much easier to make it an emotional issue. I keep remembering that Time magazine cover of a picture of Donald Trump screaming at a picture of a tiny crying undocumented child. That was what they did because that was easier and that was emotional appeal right. to, to the public and it worked for a while. Right. Well, look, you mentioned the dreamers. I mean, Trump wanted to come up with a path of, for, to citizenship for the dreamers and then something weird happened within his own administration where it was like, you you can't do that. You'll be giving them a victory. You'll be giving right. the them hard a win or something. Yeah. The hardliners prevailed over him. Now, there, even there, there is a, a certain element of, in a deterrent fashion, like, if you do this, then you can say you're a hardliner. But then, the, again, the coyotes and everyone can go around and say, look, they're going to give – once the kids get in there, as long as they're there, they're going to become citizens. So just let me take – give me $10,000 and I'll take them there and they'll become citizens and then they'll they'll pull you over. And the, what are these – People in you know villages in in Guatemala know they they don't they don't know what the hell is going on. So it's not like there wasn't uh, an uh, you know uh, an unintended consequence problem with the citizenship for dreamers idea. However, the classic political grand bargain would have been do the dreamers in exchange for something tough. Which, by the way should have been something that Democrats could have gone with also if they hadn't lost their minds, including Obama. If if there hadn't become this sort of lobbying effort on the far left, uh, largely by, you know, Latinx groups, to claim that any effort to deal with illegal immigration was uh, an act of racist, um, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing of the United States. And so Obama, too, had a base he didn't want to offend. So he just wanted to let the dreamers in and do nothing else, whereas there could have been a grand bargain. And Trump sat there with Pelosi and said, let's make a deal on the dreamers. And then it all fell to pieces. Obama was fortunate insofar as uh, he didn't face an immigration crisis because there were very few economic incentives to immigrate illegally to the United States. Uh, illegal immigration, I think, hit its low. No, but he did. He did in 2014. The first border crisis, right? Because child border crisis was illegal immigration is a lagging indicator of your economic conditions. Right. So illegal immigration continued at its at a appreciable pace from 2008, 2009, well into the crisis, and then slowed finally in 2010 and 2011, and then began to pick up again after the 2012 election. So. Right. Yeah, so what you're, you know, 
It's not, it's not, it's a, an indication, I guess, of the uh, continued performance of the American economy despite COVID and that interruption. So I guess that's a, a vote of faith in, in the future. Well, well, the other thing was that, that, that Obama had decided that there was no dealing with Republicans, period. So then he did all this unilateral stuff, primarily, and the Dreamers, of course, was a unilateral executive order granting citizenship to people, which was an outrageous and unconstitutional act that courts, you know, I don't know, nine to nothing. They were like, I don't know how many cases uh, were rejected nine to nothing as a you know transparent effort to impose right law that the administration had no right to write in the in the you know in the case of the dreamers so um he thought he couldn't deal with the republicans on the hill but i, I don't know that that's true i mean you know they 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 could have could have put up you know 2 billion dollar 5 billion dollars for a border wall but that was bad everything was bad anything that might be restrictionist was bad so that the notion that if you wanted to do something you considered good, you would have to make some kind of a trade-off with something that you considered bad, which is what political compromise is, was already off the table. And the Democrats said that it was solely because Republicans were so recalcitrant. But I don't think any serious offer was made because, of course, they also didn't have their heart in it. They didn't want any kind of tough enforcement. They didn't like tough enforcement. And so the, it would have been a betrayal of their own principles to 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 go there. And here we are with Biden now. The, I think the funny part about this is this. You, I, I think I mentioned this uh, last week or something, but you guys remember when in New York State they they changed all these criminal justice rules? Was it the beginning of 2019 or the beginning of 2020? Uh, bail ended and, uh, how you, uh, I don't know, put people up and how to de- deal with people who were in pre-trial and then it's their parole rules and stuff like that. And there was this kind of like mass release of criminals into the general population kind of all at once at the beginning of January. And by February 1st, there was a crime spike. There was a massive crime spike in New York State. It was like it was like you know QED right there, absolute like primal, unassailable logic. You did one thing, and it had this consequence. And this is exactly the same thing. We're we're like sixty two days or something into the administration. They change all the border rules, and then there's a border crisis, and they got no one to blame but themselves. I mean, I you know, it's like they didn't have to change the rules. They wanted to. They did it. And it was like they pulled a stopper out without thinking, okay, we don't like this stopper, so we better put up some caulk. Or, you know, what do you use if you don't have a stopper? You know, you better put up some drywall or like a, or like a you know, a, a wood plank to stop the to stop the flow but this is like all the uh you know 100 100 days of 100 masks of 100 vaccines of 100 the gimmicky impulse in in a new administration has real world awful consequences when it's not thought through they could have been much more targeted in what they changed policy wise they could have said we're sending all this money to the border so that we can have more processing facilities to get people processed and sort of you know documented in a way that we can then make sure that their path to citizenship is X, Y, or Z. I mean, there are so many policy choices they could have made, but they didn't. They wanted the gimmicky, big, like, look at us. We're not Trump. We're so we're so nice. We're the kind people now. You know, the bad man is gone. The good man is in the office now. You know, let's build back better. They just chose. It was a choice. And so I agree with Noah earlier. You, the initial question you asked, John, like, should we feel bad for them? No, no. You know, <laughs> it, it really should be like um, a warning about you know, radical or or activist policy proposals in general. Like, you know, take a look at this and heed it. You know, you 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 want a fifteen dollar minimum wage? Suddenly, you you think you you think we won't see the effects of that almost immediately as well? You know, or or any a whole host of things. But that's, I mean, but that gets to the the meat of it because it's not like 
they don't acknowledge the downsides of a of a fifteen dollar minimum wage. They acknowledge the one point four million jobs that will be cost as a result. They just think that the consequences of the policy are better than the downsides. So those one million one point four million dollar jobs that are million jobs they they rationalize as being bad jobs, as unfulfilling jobs, as right. unsatisfying jobs, unremunerative jobs, and therefore they can justify whatever they want to do. So you know this is a very similar approach. They justify rationalize the idea that. A little bit of pain felt by a little bit of people at the border is is a consequence that we can absorb in pursuit of this grander objective, right. uh, which God God knows how, what they would articulate it as being. But presumably it has a lot to do with just more and more people entering the United States, whatever their conditions are. The, the they there is an interesting choice, though, because you say they acknowledge. I mean, certainly Biden, I mean, as a public matter, as a public messaging matter, most politicians who want there to be a $15 minimum wage do not acknowledge the trade-off. They say it's like, it's like, you know, it's a, it's, it, it's deserved and it's what will help and it's bad that it's not. And corporations are stealing money from individuals and all of that. Then when you dig down into it and you have, you know, uh, economists who have studied this matter for 20, even so the economists who suggest it or celebrate it or something like that, they do have to acknowledge it because there is so much hard macroeconomic evidence of the truth that raising, you know, creating a minimum wage has deleterious consequences for people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder in terms of their first employment or or how or how many people are employed at the at the lowest rung when it costs so much to hire them and to employ them and so they then have to say okay so according to our calculations x number of jobs will be lost but in the long run There'll be so much more money generated by, for the economy that then people will eventually hire the people who weren't hired at, at the higher rate because it, it's there's going to be this wonderful multiplier effect from the dollars that are paid off, right? But of course, you know what that doesn't deal with? That's one of the problems with this kind of thinking, which is that that doesn't deal with the person at the time who was laid off who has been paid $8 an hour and is laid off because his employer can't afford to pay him 15 Maybe three years down the road, the economy will grow so much that that person can be hired at 15 but maybe for three years, he can't get a job at all. And then he's just making up lost time or becomes one of those people who is perpetually in and out or, you know, what do they call it? Like insecurely attached to the labor force. And there are many so of them. Yeah, there are many of him. And so we have this kind of world in which the, you know, the kind of macro good uh, is so pretty that it, it, it kind of starts avoiding the fact of the micro bad. Well, and the insecurely attached uh, workforce then is used as an excuse by those same people to argue for a universal basic income or for more spending on, you know, sort of handout type checks. It's like, well, they can't find a job. So we have to do something for them. Well, they can't find a job because you did do something to them with the minimum wage. Right. Uh, So guys, um, Passover begins next weekend. This is your last week to get yourself before Passover, not the last week because it'll be available forever, but last week before Passover to get yourself a copy of Mark Gerson's The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life, his guide, study, uh, anecdotal history and um, and fascinating examination of the Haggadah, the the Passover prayer book, guide to the Seder, uh, the the two meals, uh, the two meals and celebrations that we have uh, commemorating the Exodus from Egypt and the uh, and uh, and everything uh, around it. And um, one of the interesting things about the Haggadah is that is that while it is half, it half tells the story of the Exodus from Egypt. It it also embodies the central core truth of Judaism, which is that it is a monotheistic religion that is that that represents a a, a spiritual moral war against uh, idolatry, the uh, you know literal idolatry, the celebration of sort of multiple gods, and actual and sort of. Uh, Symbolic idolatry, which is the idea of substituting um, 
hopes and wishes and dreams for uh, for a moral and legal code that tells you how to live a better life. So, uh, so for example, Mark writes, idolatry is the most frequently prohibited activity in the Torah. The Talmud says that the denial of idolatry is akin to accepting the entire Torah, a belief echoed by Maimonides, who writes, whoever denies idolatry admits the whole Torah, all of the prophets, and all in that which the prophets were instructed since Adam, even till the end of time. Thus, it is the most outstanding commandment of them all. So this helps explain why there is so much attention given in the Haggadah, which basically says our purpose here is to tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt, but that uh, the the story is so is so unspecific to the Exodus from Egypt in some ways that it doesn't mention Moses, it doesn't mention all kinds of aspects of the of the journey, and it doesn't mention Moses out of fear that Moses will become an idol separate from separate from God to the Jewish people. That God is the actor who liberated the Jews, not Moses. Moses was his representative, or Moses was his kind of you know servant but we are to celebrate God. So this is one of the many observations that uh, that makes Mark Gerson's book, The Telling, such a valuable and interesting addition to your Passover commemoration, and you should get it today. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, download the audiobook, download the Kindle, whatever you want to do, do it today. Um, so um, a friend of mine who was a doctor, who was a, a very, uh, who was a, a passionate listener to the, to the podcast, um, complained on Friday that, uh, uh, she's a, she's a great lover of, um, of Anthony Fauci that, you know, we keep, we keep attacking Fauci and why do we do that? Why are we, we're anti-science and we don't like Fauci and what's the matter with Fauci and all that. And, um, I want to, I want to, offer an explanation for a partial explanation for what it is that is driving us all crazy that is larger than just the question of how Anthony Fauci talks about COVID and social responsibility and all of that. Um, There was a story in the New York Times about how the end of COVID represents a crisis in this country for people who are suffering with social anxiety and that Therapists across the country and mental health professionals are worried because the people that they deal with for whom social relations and social relationships and work relationships and all of that are agony have actually found a measure of contentment, solace, and comfort in living in a world in which they are not compelled constantly to confront these anxieties on an hourly or, you know, hourly or day-to-day basis. They can live in their, you know, they can live nested in their own bubbles. They can, you know, stay secure at home. They can work introvertedly. They can just hang out with their own families and, you know, small numbers of people and that this is paradise for them and that and that the end of COVID represents uh, a potential health crisis of its own. Um, and I think this gets to the ultimate problem here that we have been dancing around, which is... There are people to whom, for whom this year has been a kind of a benefit. And uh, teachers, I think most of all, that's one of the reasons that this is so maddening to us, teachers who do not have to stand in front of a classroom, discipline a classroom, go to work, you know, spend the hour getting to work, the hour getting home from work, have horrible meetings, you know, with administrators, whatever, um, and that, and that there is a there is a benefit that helps explain why they are being why they and their representatives are being so incredibly recalcitrant about following the science and getting back to school, but that's just one profession. And I think the whole point here is that for those of us who see our kids suffering because they they are denied proper you know conventional social activity, including sports or whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to look at, or just hang out with friends, sleepovers, going to movies, doing whatever it is you do, that we are we are now in a kind of social confrontation with the forces of this social anxiety that have oddly, for the first time in our lifetimes, gotten the upper hand. They spend their lives being told, you need to get over it, you've got to uh, work through your social anxiety, be yourself, and everybody will like you, and whatever it is. And obviously, it's it's a kind of terrible conundrum for them. And suddenly, they got this huge 
here's our term, drink, permission structure, to live the way they want to live. And the only way that that can continue is if everybody else lives the way that they live. That article did a pretty good job of characterizing this impulse uh, within a, a subset of the population as a narrow, narrow aspect of the population that nevertheless is being studied anthropologically here, um, which I appreciated. But there was plenty in that article to be mad at, including the outright unapologetic emotional blackmail that you were subjected to by one um, particular, uh, uh, I think it was a psychologist and I don't recall his name or his profession, but um, I do recall his, uh, his maddening emotional manipulation when he said, you know, we're seeing kids, you know, who are like, oh, this is the best thing that's ever happened to us, children, young children, because mommy and daddy are home now all the time and they get to play with us. And we don't, they don't go on business trips. We don't, we don't miss them as much as we used to. And that made me want to throw something. Um, because it was so abjectly, nakedly uh, designed to manipulate you. And guess what? Some people don't mind that. And if you love Dr. Fauci, who has expressly, admittedly said that he is not telling you the truth in order to manipulate you, to make you do things that you otherwise wouldn't do because it's better for the society abroad, according to his particular calculation of what society needs at any given perspective, any given time, then that's that's your bag. That's what you like. You like to be emotionally manipulated by people who you think have your best interests in mind. And good for you. But don't impose that conundrum on me. Don't impose that failing on me. That's not my problem. That's yours. I, I think there's um, there's another segment of the population that may be less narrow, that may be broader than than the one described in the, in the article, who also doesn't want to go back to work. Um, and they, it's not because they have social anxiety. It's because a lot of people in this country, and I presume elsewhere, hate their jobs or hate their workplace. And it is a misery to them, an ongoing misery to them that they had no idea how to sort of get out of. And this has been it. And these are this is the sort of same contingent that you hear talk about um, how one of the good things that will come out of this eventually when it ends, if they ever think it will end, is a sort of rethinking of the, of the workplace in general, Right. Um, that because because they're and, and this actually kind of ties into the idea that work doesn't confer dignity on you, right? Because right. it's just terrible. It's just but terrible. you know, you know, Abe, all, all we know about these sorts of things are self-reported, you know, uh, surveys and studies and things like that. And uh, the one reason that I would I would I would um, hit back on you on this is that uh, Gallup, which has been measuring workplace satisfaction since the 1930s, very consistently shows a really astonishingly high degree of satisfaction people have with their jobs or with their workplaces. Now, that that high degree is still, I don't know, 65 to 70%, which means that there's 30% who really do hate their jobs. And that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, right. Yeah. And with a megaphone, you know, of social media or whatever it is, or or activism, which of course amplifies somebody's voice out of often out of proportion to their the size of their what they represent. Um, those people again sort of may have gotten the whip hand. Um, I, I you you bring up something interesting, and it, it's weird because we work in a profession in which largely look at Noah works at home, Christine works at worked at home before before you know. Uh, COVID started. And so she's a remote worker. Noah's largely been a remote worker for the last two or three years. Um, so it's not like we don't understand the benefits of, of this. Noah had a, a long commute to, to, to the city. And so he, uh, we also then needed to split his office, which is interesting because now I'm sitting here in an office by myself with eight open offices. And the notion that we didn't have enough ones is, uh, is reasonably comic. But um, my point is, it's not that we don't understand this, but but there is an enormous uh, con that is about to be run on the American worker, which is who benefits from the, no, 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 you don't have, to, you can stay home and work. This then means that individual people are going to run, are going to cover and shoulder the costs of office space in their homes, effectively becoming freelance workers with salaries. But they are they this means that employers will be able to take vastly less space, 
to put people at work and all this, and they'll be able essentially they are they are therefore offloading on their workforces the obligation and responsibility to get paper, do this, but uh, keep up their you know IT, however you want to slice it, and suddenly everybody is an Uber driver. I mean, everybody, everyone is then using their car as their as now. This is great for some people. But it will be. It is probably terrible for vastly more people who may not have enough space in their homes. Like in, in my case, like when my kids are home from school because it's remote, we have five rooms. My wife can't go into her office. There is no place for all of us to sit and work. I mean, there is. You know, there are three. You know, there's like there, there's no space. I can't describe. And I'm you know I'm a very well-to-do person, but I live in 1,100 square feet. And there are five of us, and there's not enough space. So what what happens when? Uh, granted, so then if the if we were never able to go back to work again, and my kids go to school again, then that wouldn't be a, a problem, right? But there's no space, and we are talking about kind of letting the world of work offload the responsibility of the workplace on the worker. And at some point, people are going to look up and say. What kind of deal is this? My well, life it, was, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, it reminds me, I actually had a very cranky friend who was horrified when when um, the CVS and the grocery stores started allowing for self-service checkout kiosks. See, I was fine. I was like, that's great. I can bag my own groceries, get out of here quicker. It's more efficient. He pointed out that it was, I was now doing for free the labor that they used to pay their <laughs> checkout people to do and the baggage people. And, so, and he was right, ultimately, in terms of the economics of it. Um, I still appreciate being able to, to bag my own stuff and get out of there quicker. But the point being, I think that's right. I think it will also exacerbate the class differences that we've seen dramatically during this uh, lockdown uh, over the past year, where people who have work that is that they have to leave the house to do are, are putting themselves and put themselves at much greater risk to do, um, you know, the delivery men, the grocery store workers, the restaurant workers, everybody who has a front facing public job that requires leaving the house and then everybody else. Right. So there'll be an entire service industry that's uh, that we've seen in action in the last year, but there'll be even more of those that cater to the people like us who are privileged enough to be able to sit at home and do our work and to do whatever we want and to manage our own schedules and all that versus the people who actually are running around like a servant class, butlering all the needs of those people. Right. And I don't think that's great in a democracy like ours. It's already pretty riven by, by uh, polarization politically. Let's also talk about what it's like uh, as this year has now, we've now really clicked over into the second year of, of, of the pandemic, right? Which is, when you work at home and you stay at home and don't go out and you stay at home, what do you not have to do when you're at home? You don't have to wear a mask at home. What do you have to do if you are a front-facing public worker or somebody who has to work outside or somebody who has to work in a store? You spend eight hours a day in that mask. You spend eight hours a day in that mask. No wonder the upper middle classes who can downshift into working at home in part because of the, the PC means that everybody has a filing cabinet in their computer so they don't need paper or whatever it is. The inconvenience is, you know, is, is, is terrible. I mean, it's, you know, you're claustrophobic, you can't go, whatever, you can't go to the movies and stuff like that. But, but how much you have to restrict your breathing or whatever you want to call it um, is pretty much your own choice. And uh, so, sure, let's do it forever so that everybody else who is poorer than you and is and is the person who is making your life possible has to live with this terrible inconvenience. And you don't care. You don't care. Well, and it does start to become that. It starts to become a whole class of people who have to take constant precautions and constant awareness and constant tests and masks and hygiene procedures just so that you can continue to sit at home and do your job. I mean, I, from their perspective, I completely understand having that logic. Like, what? <laughs> but there's a self-selection at work here, too, right? I mean, a certain amount of people who are predisposed to this kind of social anxiety already gravitate to positions that are in the, you know, the thought class, the thought leader class and, and intellectual journals and think tanks and and the professorate and what have you that, that don't really have a forward face. I mean, they do, they, they dealt with people on a day-to-day basis, but we're much more inclined towards 
uh, introversion and research and that sort of, you know, study and focus. Whereas people who were extroverted generally gravitated towards positions that had a, had a forward face. So the people who are now making this determination for all of us were already predisposed to introversion. Well, I mean, I suppose, although although that doesn't mean that the whole point about workplaces and life and life in general is thickness, right? What makes life worth living is a certain degree of thickness, meaning uh, even if, even if uh, you know, like uh, all these surveys that say that parents are, are less, you know, parents, uh, happiness, parenting doesn't bring happiness, right? Because kids can get sick, kids can, you know, you, you, there's a lot of tension, you have to, they're, they're expensive, and, you know, they, 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 they bring you nothing but grief and heartache and all of that stuff. But what they do, even if they don't necessarily improve your habit, is they thicken your life, they enrich your life. Doesn't necessarily mean they make it more pleasurable, but it's richer. And things like having to go to an office, having to deal with people at your workplace, having like um, limited but even casual but constant social interactions thickens your life, makes it more more um, memorable, more um, interesting, even if sometimes engaged, it yeah. provokes – Engaged, right, provokes, provokes anxiety. And, of course, the temptation for the introverted – and, you know, in the Myers-Briggs test category, I actually come across as an introvert, not that I believe in Myers-Briggs and all that. The, 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 test for the, the test in these moments is what happens when you, are, when you are offered a seduction, right? And the seduction is you don't have to do it anymore. Don't worry. You don't have to. That stuff that, that, stuff that you feel the fear but you do it anyway, now you can just feel the fear and then you don't do it anyway. And even that pleasure, that sense of um, achievement that comes from mastering your anxiety or overcoming some kind of a limited moment of anxiety, you no longer are challenged to do. And then you kind of shrivel slowly up a little bit. That's that's the meat of it, isn't it? That was, there was a quote in that article that we're talking about from a student who said, you know, I can't, I no longer have any control over my environment. I can't control what other people do. I can't control what my day looks like. I lose control. And that is the essence of experience, right? That is the essence of life and how you navigate unanticipated events, sequences of events that force you to improvise. And that's that's richness, that's growth. And that's the sort of thing that, that drives anxiety. So either you, you have to master and completely control your environment, or you figure out how to navigate the uncontrollable world outside. Well, and this is the way in which I think despite Thank goodness we've had all these technological platforms that have allowed a lot of us to continue to do what we do for our work, et cetera, et cetera. I think this year has also given us a pretty strong argument for why that isn't the replacement that Silicon Valley has long promised us it would be for community, for that thickness. There's a certain kind of very controlled interaction you can have online that doesn't exist in the real world. And that's why people say things on Twitter they'd never say to your face. So that actually, I, that's actually one of the weird silver linings of this pandemic. And I will say, because the people who want to keep us in lockdown and doing that are going to end up like the unabomber basically sitting in a cabin controlling everything coming up with their own theories and like not having to interact that's another thing because that student said that one of the ways that he can control his environment is i can now i can mute people i can mute you i could just turn off your mic your camera and you cease to exist for me and that's we're we're experiencing that on a society-wide level Mm -hmm. now right that's literally that's basically cancel culture. Is I can, right. I can mute you out of existence. Yeah. Whereas in the real world, you can't. You actually have to deal with human beings as they exist and as they present themselves to you, and you can't simply wish them out of existence. Um, guys, so uh, as the pandemic goes into its second year, and as as we look forward to this supposed economic boom that is going to transform our society. Once people emerge from the pandemic, you really should take my lead and go and took, look at the products provided by the Bonson Group, that uh, bi-coastal financial management firm with $2.5 billion under management led by David Bonson, who produ- who's uh, the, 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 the saliency and value of his uh, – Investment advice is is provided to you every day and every week, every day by the dctoday.com, his daily newsletter on market movements and 
what what's gone on during the day in Washington in terms of economic policy and weekly at dividendcafe.com where he uh, goes into some of the larger macroeconomic issues that are confronting us today. Of course, I think the biggest uh, issue uh, in the long range and the long term that uh, that came to the fore last week was this confrontation with China in Alaska where the Chinese told basically told us that they're better than we are, they're stronger than we are. We we have such a terrible society. They have their own democracy. We should be ashamed of ourselves, and they know what they're doing. And all of that was a a small bore picture of the kind of confrontation between the United States and China that is unignorable, that is undismissible, and that will have vast macroeconomic consequences. And you will. You will uh, do yourself and and uh, and your your family and your investment portfolio and everybody a favor by keeping abreast of all of this with the products of the Bonson Group, the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com, and look to the Bonson Group for uh, possible financial management of your assets if you are in that kind of category because uh, they know what they're doing and uh, they are the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. So we thank the Bonson Group for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. No, you're talking about cancel culture and we have not discussed the amazing story of Alexi McCammond. And I think we should discuss the amazing story of Alexi McCammond because I don't care about Alexi McCammond. And if I got canceled, Alexi McCammond would not care about me. She would not care if I, a conservative working at this magazine, said the wrong thing and I got canceled and somebody, and, and the board of commentary Inc. decided that I had to be fired and all of that. But I care about her. And what I care about is here she is. She's 27 years old. She gets this job at Teen Vogue and somebody who is, uh, full of envy and, uh, as, as is the want of somebody who gets a pretty great job, uh, young, um, uh, becomes a kind of target for envy. And someone goes and digs up old tweets when, from when she was 17 years old, three tweets in which she uh, used the word Asian in a slighting fashion, Alexi McCammon being a, uh, an African-American from a working-class background who got a scholarship to the University of Chicago. And in her first quarter at the University of Chicago, basically uh, let loose with some stuff about uh, an Asian TA and a couple of other things. And she apologized. She apologized in 2019. She apologized now. Some advertiser said to Condé Nast, we, we better uh, hold uh, and suspend our uh, our our, our egg until we figure out what's happening. And so she resigned. And then some um, queer Filipino Latinx person uh, on staff then tweeted out that she was just, she had been holding her breath and now she was so excited that this wasn't happening and that they, thank God and all of that. And then somebody dug up the fact that she wrote repeated tweets using the N word herself, which of course gives the game away, which is that you're only canceling somebody. Uh, it's a power play often to cancellation is largely a power play. It's a way of getting people fired or removed from jobs uh, because they're in your way or they're bothering you and it annoys you that they're employed and you don't care about them and the whole point about this is that life uh, should be a mutual non-aggression pact. And people in the world are not supposed to go aggress against other people in the world uh, out of nowhere for things that they did when they were kids because God knows what somebody can do to you. And all those rules that were once understood are now totally out the window. They are totally out the window and Alexi McCammon wouldn't care if I were fired, but I care that she's fired. And interestingly enough, the right is spending more time worrying about what is happening to people on the left than the left has ever given one little shit about what happens to people on the right. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. Um, that's a pretty pretty effective monologue, and uh, I agree with every aspect of it. Um, you have seen some, and there's a lot of principle being displayed by people on the right who have been opposed to cancel culture saying it doesn't matter whether she agrees with me or not. This is wrong, and I'm going to say it. Good for them. But you have seen a couple of people in media on the left saying, what are we doing to ourselves here? Um, one of the fun, it's the fun things, a fun outgrowth of this, insofar as you can take uh, some small measure of satisfaction from these sort of things, is that we're, there are people who engage in this sort of thing, like, like Teen Vogue now, are engaged in an experiment that's sort of like the earliest days 
of the Soviet Union, like the 1920s and the Bolsheviks just got rid of all the managers and said, so, you know, no managers. We're just going to we're just going to work and we'll figure out how to make it work without any uh, without any you know oversight. So they're just going editorless. Well, and, that's the and, Vogue. So and, it's, and, it's, it's the, the proletarian revolution here where everybody gets to write whatever they want to write and there's no oversight whatsoever. It's like when the Oscars went hostless because no one in the world of entertainment could meet the standards that they had established for being uncancelable, which is never having anything that is retroactively policed. Now, the standards that are being policed were not enforced if they even existed when the offenses were committed. And so you've established this, this set of criteria that, that no one can meet. And so you're just, you're going into a world without oversight. Okay, can I just say that? If you don't like oversight. The irony of saying that now Teen Vogue won't have an editor, given how crappy a magazine it's been and how woke and ridiculous it's been for years with an editor is, I think, <laughs> worth noting. The world would be a better place if Teen Vogue did not exist. There, I'll put that out there. It's You're basically canceling this, Teen it's Vogue. so bad. It basically <laughs> exists as, as either an alternative, like all their politics stuff is woke, and all the advice they're giving young women is basically trying to normalize the most outrageous just sexual fetishes that these kids stumble across on you know online like it's bizarre it's not it does nothing to help young women so i i would be happy to see it you know obliterated entirely but the i've been really interested to see how i there is a real contrast in this case between the people on the right who are saying look here's another example of what we're worried about and the only occasional slightly painstaking hand-wringing of a few principled people on the left. I mean, look, the Atlantic Monthly wrote, didn't they run a piece about this, which is ironic considering they immediately canceled Kevin Williamson after hiring him for, because they suddenly read, I guess, his, you know, obvious opinions about abortion and some staffers got wound up. So I think that the left has really got now an entrenched, I love to use it, structural problem here, and they're not really confronting it yet. It's going to, I think it's going to take a more um, solidified a uh, couple more heads rolling like they did at the New York Times op-ed page and elsewhere before they really, if they're willing to have this moment. John's shaking his head, which means yeah, I don't agree with yeah, that. Nobody, be- nobody believes they'll no, actually have the. No, I, I think it ta- they it, won't. Yeah. No have, reckoning. They'll have, draw, they'll have to draw blood in the form of money. It's going to take a, a, a wrongful defamation suit or a wrongful firing suit, and and in, and a judgment in the seven or eight figure range. Okay. I, I don't think, okay. So the other big story this morning, Abe, is this story about um, Ibram X. Kendi uh, teaming with the Boston Globe to revise the paper and become an anti-racist newspaper. Right. Um, so this begs, uh, th- I, I, I use the wrong term. So this, this raises the question, who is the audience for this? That's where it comes down. Like, they are it's been a 20 year decline secular decline of major american journalism that had this momentary sort of revivification in sort of anti trump uh resistance fighting um trump is now gone they're going to attempt to continue to fight the resistance in the form of the republicans the cnn by like turning tucker carlson into trump or something like that um who does the Boston Globe think will want to read the anti-racism newspaper published by Ibram X. Kendi, a.k.a. Henry Rogers? Like, who is going to read this? Have you ever read How to Be an Anti-Racist? What human being wants to read more of this? Like, okay, fine, you're assigned it few, for few, your re-education <clears throat> session. Few people in Boston, if my memory serves, of what that town was like, to <laughs> right, be honest. right. Um, I mean, I think my, my central point here is like, okay, fine. So embrace all of this. It's a real market test. That's it's not. It's a market test, not a. Do will do they care? Because of course Wesley Lowry doesn't care. By the way, Wesley Lowry wrote a hilarious Wesley Lowry, who is Christine's uh, big bugbear, right? The uh, what is his term? Moral clarity. What is it? Yes, moral mean? clarity in journalism. Moral clarity rather than clarity. rather than objectivity. Yes. So his moral clarity includes writing a wildly favorable review of a book by Don Lemon. So that's the moral clarity is praise your friends and praise people who say things you like when you don't mean it or if you don't even have the judgment necessary to find it. Who is the audience for this? So, you know, the New York Times remade itself as the sort of woke Bible or like the woke lifestyle guide, really, you know, sort of, you know, how to sort of, you know, come come at every aspect of life from the proper perspective um, the the Washington Post has been the anti Trump uh, go to. There are always also rands in everything, right? 
So the globe is going to be the the also ran, right? It's going to be a sort of lesser, wokey, you know, who who will read it? If they have some breakthrough, you know, pieces on it, 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 according to the the anti racist paradigm, they'll start getting circulated, and it'll, it'll become a thing. Yeah, I think I think it would be uncharitable to anticipate what this paper publishes before it publishes it. So keep an open mind. And there's, there's always room in, in for more intellectual journals. I, I don't mind that. But this is an intellectual journal. It's not a newspaper. My favorite part of it, the description of its mission statement, is that it was going to try to move away from this paradigm in which uh, straight news reporting and objectivity is distinct from the uh, propositions and uh, opinions that are put forward in opinion journalism and opinion reporting and opinion news, as though that distinction has been observed by anyone in the news business for the last 30 years or more. Uh, it's an insult to your intelligence to suggest that that moiety is, is so strict and so observed that the editorial teams on these newspapers actually make sure that there's no opinion report in, in straight news analysis. But good for this you know, new opinion journal to be launching, but let's call it what it is. It's an opinion. Okay, journal. but my favorite part of the this is a the, the Ben Smith. This, this was an the article in the New York Times. Yeah. So my favorite part of the article actually was the was the I cannot believe he wrote this without falling onto his keyboard and convulsions of laughter. Um, I want to get it right. So self promotion doesn't come naturally to Dr. Kendi. <laughs> Is there anyone in this country who doesn't know who this guy is because he's been promoting his baby books and his journals and his aunt? I'm sorry. I just, that one, that yeah. truly did shock me that I saw I, that. I, say one thing about the objectivity standard that's being thrown away. So uh, the press has never been objective. Uh, uh, what was in the, in the, when conservative um, attacks on media bias really began to get purchased in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, very, very, um, pompously, uh, we would be informed that no, 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 the media are objective, and how dare you? Because we're objective, and we just report the news, and we don't blah, 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 all this, uh, which was stupid, and uh, in fact was a was a was a bad line to take because what you should say, and what is still the truth, and what should still be the truth is that objectivity is an ideal. And it is something that human beings cannot reach, but it represents a boundary or at least a kind of floor or a, or a flood break against the introduction of falsehoods and lies into reporting on what is going on. Not just opinion, but falsehood and lies, because when you do not have objectivity as a standard, even if it's not a standard, then propaganda becomes the standard. You want to advance an argument and get people to believe you. And th there is nothing that will prevent you from telling people untruths uh, in order to get them on your side. And so the surrendering of objectivity, a standard that has not been met, has never been met, but has never been met worse than now, will represent a kind of, uh, you know, breaching of the levy of you know, uh, of all possible ability to trust that anybody is telling you anything real or or re re revealing anything real exactly at the moment when, as we've seen this kind of these kind of incredibly creepy deep fakes, you can now see, you know, Tom, a guy imitating Tom Cruise walking into a room with Tom Cruise's face on and you don't know that it's not Tom Cruise. And, and the, which this is a really good point. And I also think it builds on what Noah said earlier about uh, not minding that there be more journals of opinion and, you know, let many flowers bloom. I will say this and shout out to my friend and uh, commentary contributor, Naomi Riley, for pointing this out. Imagine what that money could do if it was targeted towards local journalism, like local newspapers, all the stuff that, that you know, in mainstream journalism, they're all decrying the decline of local journalism, you know, local papers shutting down. Imagine what that money directed at Kendi's, you know, multi-million dollar center and now this new journal. Imagine what that could do if somebody just threw it at local Massachusetts politics, for example, like people who live in these smaller areas covering their local news and giving people a, an attempt at an objective kind of local journalism that has almost disappeared from this country. Right. Well, I mean, I'll give you a, a one last example of this that we got to go uh, is 
the the denuding of the press corps in Albany, New York, uh, where you know there was one, there were once like forty or fifty or sixty major New York reporters at Albany for all the papers, not just the Times and the Post and the Daily News and Newsday, but every paper in New York State had an Albany reporter, and there was an enormous press corps, and had that press corps existed when Andrew Cuomo became governor, that press corps, he would not have been able to escape scrutiny the way he escapes scrutiny now that there are 10 or 12 or something like that. And he would not be able to focus on them and mercilessly hound them and 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 torment them and drive several of them from the profession because they couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't take his nastiness and his ugliness and his <clears throat> his thuggish aides calling them at two, you know at, at, at all times of the day or night, trying to you know like get them to do whatever it was that they wanted. Um, that's a real thing, and that was a real thing. It's always been a real thing in state capitals, and it is a huge problem. And yes, and so, but then you get like your favorite crime, which is America is a racist country, and that's where all the resources are dedicated, rather than the resources that could actually have served to keep Andrew Cuomo from sending old people to their deaths, which he would have been much more loath to do if he knew that there were people breathing down his neck, watching everything that he did. And with that, we will reconvene tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, and I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.